and welcome to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 6th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. Let's start with the weather. Today there will be times of clouds and sun with a high of 29 degrees. Tonight will be mostly cloudy with a low of 12 degrees, and then Saturday will be low clouds with a high of 24 degrees. And now we switch over to local and state news. Supervisors may keep DeWitt on jail board. Caitlin Yamada reports from Sioux City. Former Woodbury County Supervisor Rocky DeWitt may be reappointed to the Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center Authority, the joint city-county board overseeing the new jail. Currently, DeWitt serves on the authority as the Board of Supervisors appointed commissioner. DeWitt had to resign from the Board of Supervisors after winning election to the Iowa Senate District 1 seat. He was not present at the Tuesday Board of Supervisors meeting. The resolution appointing DeWitt to the seat states resignation from the Board of Supervisors vacates the authority position. Chair Matthew Ung on Tuesday said he plans to bring a resolution forward to reappoint DeWitt for the remainder of his term, which ends December 2027. Ung said DeWitt has institutional knowledge of the process of the jail project and would be helpful to avoid a vacancy. There's nothing in the reading of the bylaws and board resolution, to my mind, that prohibits him from being reappointed to the term he's currently on, but the board should take some sort of action because technically there is a vacancy with his resignation, Ung said. The authority bylaws state the Board of Supervisors elects one commissioner for the authority that lives in the area outside the county seat. It does not require the individual to be a supervisor. The authority's purpose is to oversee the construction and initial operations of the new law enforcement center. At any time, DeWitt could be removed by a two-thirds vote by the Board of Supervisors. I'm sure he'd be amenable to that if there was someone else that was willing to step up after the completion of the project, unsaid. Recent burglaries, vehicle thefts tied to juveniles. Dolly A. Butts reports from Sioux City. Multiple juveniles, ranging in age from 12 to 15, have been charged in connection with recent burglaries and vehicle thefts in Sioux City, according to police. Over the past seven weeks, the Sioux City Police Department has been investigating burglaries at gas stations, vape shops, and a gun shop. The department made the announcement in a statement issued Thursday. According to the statement, two girls, ages 13 and 14, were charged with a burglary at Sarge's Mini Mart at 2329 West 2nd Street, which occurred on Thursday. Five males, between the ages of 12 and 15, were charged in connection with November 26th and December 2nd burglaries at The Brew at 2026 Riverside Boulevard. The department also disclosed that five vehicles were reported stolen in the city on Wednesday. All of the stolen vehicles had keys left in them. On today's date, two juvenile males, both 14-year-olds, were arrested after fleeing from a stolen vehicle, the department said in the statement. In addition to the charges related to operating stolen vehicles, those two 14-year-olds have also been charged with burglaries to American Brothers in Arms, Chasing Clouds Vape, Cure Vape, Bacon Creek General Store, and Select Mart. The investigation is ongoing. Criminal charges will be filed against several others who were involved in this string of burglaries, according to the statement. Macy Mann sentenced to federal prison for assault. From Omaha, 
A Macy, Nebraska man has been sentenced to more than six years in federal prison for sexually assaulting a girl. Talis Dale, 23, pleaded guilty in September to one count of sexual abuse of a minor. He was sentenced Thursday to in U.S. District Court in Omaha to 78 months in prison. He will serve six years on supervised release after completing his prison sentence. Dale entered the girl's bedroom in her Macy home during the early morning hours of May 3, 2021, and began touching her, stopping after becoming concerned that she was loudly demanding that he leave her room. The girl, listed as age 12 to 16, fell asleep and told investigators that she woke up later in the night to find Dale on top of her. The girl said her underwear had been removed and that Dale began to have sexual intercourse with her. When the girl asked what he was doing, Dale stopped. The girl pushed Dale off of her, told him to leave, and he did, court documents said. Man sentenced to life in prison for Milford murder. From Spirit Lake, Iowa. A Minnesota man was sentenced Thursday to life in prison without parole for the shooting death of his ex-girlfriend outside her Milford, Iowa workplace. District Judge Carl Peterson handed down the sentence, which is mandatory under Iowa law, to Christian Goyne Yarns, who was found guilty in December of first-degree murder. Goyne Yarns, 26, of Jackson, Minnesota, shot Shelby Wojski on February 3rd in the parking lot at Grape Tree Medical Staffing as she arrived for work. According to court documents, she was shot at least twice and was able to call 911 and identify Goyne Yarns as the shooter. He was arrested about an hour and a half later. Wojski, 24, of Spencer, Iowa, died in a Sioux Falls hospital February 6th. She had two young sons from a previous relationship with Goyne Yarns. Peterson ordered Goyne Yarns to pay $150,000 in restitution to Wojski's estate. The judge also denied Goyne Yarns' motion for a new trial. The case was delayed for several weeks after a defense request for a psychiatric evaluation of Goyne Yarns, who, his lumber said, was unable to assist in his own defense. After he was evaluated by a psychiatrist who submitted a report to the court, Goyne Yarns' attorneys did not seek a second evaluation and withdrew their motion to suspend court proceedings. Peterson had moved the trial to Buena Vista County, granting the defense's change of venue motion, which said media coverage and publicity surrounding the shooting and subsequent hearings would have made it hard to find an impartial jury in Dickinson County. Man sentenced to federal prison for selling meth from Sioux City. A Sioux City man was sentenced Wednesday to 15 years in federal prison for selling methamphetamine. Jesse Chavez, 43, had pleaded guilty in June in U.S. District Court in Sioux City to conspiracy to distribute methamphetamine and possession with intent to distribute methamphetamine. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Chavez was involved in the sale of meth in the Sioux City area from September 2021 through December 2021. On December 14, 2021, Sioux City police officers observed Chavez acting suspiciously in a Walgreens parking lot and inside the store, confronted him, and obtained consent to search his vehicle. Officers seized three ounces of meth and learned Chavez obtained multiple ounce quantities of the drug from his supply sources and sell lesser amounts to others. Next up is a special journal report. This is rather long, so I'll read their introduction first. About this series, 
Nearly a year ago, on January 12, 2022, what appeared to be an ordinary call to police about a possible burglary in progress ended with shots fired. Michael Meredith had rushed a Woodbury County Sheriff's deputy who fired two shots from his service weapon, one of them killing Meredith, after Meredith struck him with a tire iron. In his obituary, his family listed his cause of death as a suicide after suffering many years with alcoholism, raising a number of questions. Chief among them, was Meredith a criminal who got what he deserved, a conclusion many readers posted in the comments under media stories about the shooting? Or was there another explanation why a man with no previous brush with the law would attack law enforcement officers unprovoked? Months of journal reporting, which includes interviews with Meredith's family members and reviews of police body camera videos from two officers who had interactions with Meredith in the hours before his death, found Michael had been dealing with alcoholism and mental illness for years. Those two factors played a major role in what eventually happened the night of his death. Today, the journal offers the first of a three-day series looking into Michael's life, the events leading up to his death, and a family's unsuccessful efforts to seek help through the various legal and medical channels designed to try to prevent such tragedies from happening. Behind the Headlines Nick Heitrich reports from Sergeant Bluff. Roughly an hour before Michael Meredith was fatally shot by a sheriff's deputy, he told his mother he saw green caterpillars crawling on the ceiling in his home. Going on five days without sleep, Michael's long-time anxiety was reaching levels his mother, Carol Meredith, had never seen. The hallucinations began early in the morning that day, January 12th, when Michael called police to report a home intrusion by people he was seeing only in his mind. Hours later, he was shielding his eyes, believing he could kill people by looking at them. Yet through it all, he retained an air of calm that frustrated Carol's attempts to convince him to get help. Earlier that day, after hours of strange behavior, he told his mother he would die before letting her take him to a hospital for a mental health assessment. He told me if I tried to commit him, he would commit suicide by police, Carol said, repeating the phrase she'd never heard before that conversation. I said, what do you mean? He said, I'll do something so the police will shoot me. At 5.50 p.m., after officers responded to a report of a possible burglary in a Sergeant Bluff mobile home park, he was lying on the ground, dying from a gunshot fired by a Woodbury County Sheriff's deputy forced to take protective action after Michael rushed him and struck him with a tire iron. It was a tragic conclusion to a day in which Michael's family, unable to convince him to seek medical treatment on his own, made futile efforts to have police officers, his doctor, and the court system force him to get help. The steps I took that day, I failed at every step, Carol said. You think you're following the rules to stop a tragedy. Everything we were told we should do didn't work. Why those steps didn't turn out the way they're supposed to remains a puzzle for which the family has no solution. They place no blame on the deputy who shot Michael, ending his life at age 35. And they hope the circumstances surrounding his death might raise awareness about mental health and lead to changes so other families don't have to deal with the loss they feel every day. Michael Meredith was always anxious, and had been for years. Carol forced him to get his driver's license at age 18, though he hated to drive. He still did, disliking encounters with traffic on the streets. It seemed like over the years he got more anxious as time went by, Carol said. 
He preferred the solitude of playing online video games at home after work. He didn't do social media, no Twitter, Facebook, or other similar platforms. But he enjoyed technology. As kids, he and his older brother, Chris, would order parts and build their own computers. It was no surprise he eventually chose a computer-related career. After moving back to Sioux City from Minnesota in 2008, he did odd jobs and worked for Chris, a local contractor developer. Michael enjoyed the construction field, and he paired that interest with his technology savvy to obtain an associate degree in computer drafting from Northeast Community College in South Sioux City. It led to a job at Gleason Constructors, where he taught himself how to do 3D drafting and bring life to building plans. He could do a rendering and then walk around, pardon me, then walk them through it before it was built, Chris said. Though he had a good job and a long-term relationship with Lauren Lanning, his fiancée he had been seeing for around 10 years, his anxieties did not ease. At the time of his death, he was taking a prescription medication for anxiety as well as two antidepressants, all drugs found in his system in a post-mortem toxicology report. In spite of his medication, his anxiety seemed to be intensifying, Lanning said. It was becoming increasingly harder for him to interact with strangers, even family and people he was familiar with. Though he could be outwardly entertaining and funny while having a conversation, Michael's anxiety simmered unseen during those social interactions. It was something that affected him acutely, Lanning said. It was hard for him to go out and socialize. Instead of going out, Michael spent most of his free time at Lanning's South, pardon me, Lanning's Sioux City home or in the Sergeant Bluff house he rented from his brother, playing online video games with a small group of friends on a gaming setup that included the latest components. To avoid interactions, Lanning said she and Michael usually ordered takeout and streamed movies at home instead of going to a restaurant or movie theater. Over time, she said, he became more withdrawn, even becoming reluctant to go to family gatherings. Michael would nonetheless show up to family cookouts. An outspoken liberal and a Bernie Sanders supporter, he'd get into political arguments with his brother-in-law, showing a breadth of knowledge gained from extensive reading that kept him up to date on current events and politics. You could say anything and he could talk to you about it, Chris said. He could explain every concept you asked him. And he was generous, spoiling his nieces and nephews with extravagant gifts including top-of-the-line virtual reality headsets so they could play online video games with him. He never spent money on himself, his brother said. That wasn't quite true, given his love of video game systems and components and alcohol. Carol first became aware of her son's drinking problem about five months before his death. Michael would have a few drinks at family gatherings, but his mother had no idea of his drinking habits while in the privacy of his own home. She remembers that night in August 2021 well. It was a Saturday, and Chris had received a call from a concerned friend who had been playing video games online with Michael. The friend said Michael's speech was slurred all night, and when he no longer responded to their banter during a game, the friend believed Michael had passed out. Chris alerted their mother, and Carol went to Michael's house, but he wasn't there. Instead, he was at Lauren's home, intoxicated. I had never known him to be... Like that, Carol said. Lanning had, however. Michael had been drinking for years, she said, starting with a few beers after work and progressing into hard liquor for the past four or five years as he felt increasing pressures from his job and being around people. 
Alcohol was his release, Lanning said. It was a way to numb all the constant emotions he felt. Michael's alcohol intake increased over time, and Lanning moved out of his home four or five years ago because of it. Lanning said she asked him several times to go into treatment, but he refused because dealing with doctors and treatment providers could be daunting for him. Instead, he kept it a secret, telling Lanning not to inform his family about his drinking. Getting help was hard for him, she said. I definitely wanted him to, but it became a sore subject. He didn't want anyone to know. It was something I didn't feel comfortable telling his family about against his wishes. Carol finally found out that August night, an encounter Lanning said she doesn't remember. Carol took Michael home with her. He stayed a couple days, during which time he drank all the liquor in her home. Realizing her son had a problem, Carol confronted him one night, telling him he needed help. He wasn't very agreeable, she said. Carol went to bed and later heard a crash. Michael appeared to have had a seizure and had fallen down. She called her brother, Pat Gill, who lives nearby, and they took Michael to the emergency room, where doctors told him he needed to get alcohol abuse treatment. They asked him if he was going to hurt himself, Carol said. He said no. In the ER, Michael told his mother that for weeks he'd been binge drinking, starting after work on Fridays and going until Sunday morning, when he'd begin sobering up for work on Monday. He agreed to get help and was accepted into an inpatient program at Rosecrans Jackson Centers in Sioux City. After 20 days in treatment, he signed himself out. He said he was done drinking, Carol said. He just said he could do it himself and didn't need them to help him. He stayed sober for a few weeks, but it didn't last. Instead, a cycle of what Carol believed was a brief period of sobriety, followed by a weekend drinking binge, developed. Each time, Michael would call Carol, who would bring him to her home to sober up. I think he just felt more safe with me because I'm a nurse, Carol said. But Michael wasn't being completely honest with his mother about his drinking habits, Lanning said. There were no cycles of sobriety and binging. He continued to drink nearly every night until the final days before his death. Though Lanning worked nights and slept during daytime hours and wasn't able to see him as often, she observed how Michael's drinking began to affect his personality and his mental well-being. He definitely was going through a period where it was harder for him to go out and interact with people, she said. Even going to the liquor store was difficult. On Friday evening, January 7th, Carol received a familiar call from Michael. He told her he'd been drinking. She picked him up and brought him home. It was the last time he drank, to Carol's knowledge. After that Saturday, he seemed all right, she said. He was completely acting normal. He just told me he couldn't sleep. By Monday, Michael's anxiety had intensified. He hadn't been able to sleep all weekend. After arriving at work, he began sweating and feeling anxious and was sent home. He called his mother later, telling her he'd made an appointment with his doctor to talk about his anxiety. He also said he'd received a referral to see a counselor and had scheduled an appointment for January 18th, a meeting he wouldn't live long enough to make. By Tuesday, he'd gone five days without drinking or sleeping and still wasn't feeling better. Nothing seemed wrong, Carol said, when she talked to him that day. Everything was normal, except he couldn't sleep, and he told me he was messed up, Carol said. He said, I think I keep hearing voices. I kind of blew it off. He was acting normal. Within hours, Michael was no longer behaving normally. 
Her ringing phone woke Carol up at about 3.30 the morning of Wednesday, January 12th. She didn't recognize the number, but answered anyway. <clears throat> it was Michael calling from a Sergeant Bluff police officer's phone while sitting in the back of a squad car. Everything is so messed up over here, and they just tore up my house, Michael told her. Confused by those comments, Carol got dressed and drove to Michael's house. About half an hour earlier, at 2.55 a.m., Officer Travis Hutzel was dispatched to Michael's home at 201 Fifth Street after Michael had called to report an intruder. In a recording of the 911 call, Michael can be heard telling the dispatcher, some crazy ex-boyfriend came over here and he put like a false beating over here, so now I got before the call disconnected. The dispatcher called back. Michael did not answer. Footage from Hutzel's body camera showed him walking up to Michael's house. Michael talked to Hutzel through an open window near the front door, telling him he had been with a woman whose ex-boyfriend barged in and got into a heated argument with her before the two left. Michael was adamant they'd file a false police report against him. Unaware the whole situation Michael had relayed to him was a hallucination, Hutzel returned to his vehicle to scan Michael's driver's license and run a background check. As Hutzel stepped out of his vehicle to return to the house, Michael exited and told Hutzel the man and woman had returned and were blowing marijuana smoke out the windows. When Hutzel asked to go inside, Michael realized he'd locked himself out of his house. As they walked around the house looking for signs of a break-in, Hutzel began to suspect a possible mental health situation. Sitting in his vehicle with Michael and waiting for Carol to arrive, Hutzel radioed to dispatch, probably mark this down as a 96 issue, a reference to an Iowa Police 1096 code pertaining to mental health. Michael insisted the couple was going to ransack his house, steal items, and fill it with cheese. They'd already put his couches on the lawn, he told the officer, whose body camera clearly showed no furniture in the yard. After Carol arrived, Hutzel told her, I don't know if he's having a mental issue. Before leaving with his mother, Michael asked Hutzel what he'd do about the people inside his house. They'll steal everything, he said. Hutzel assured Michael he'd take a look around to make sure nothing happened at his house before Carol took Michael home. On the way to her house, Carol said, Michael repeated the story about the couple trashing his house. The whole way he was telling me this fantastic story that didn't make sense. I've never heard him talk like that in my life, she said. Once at Carol's home, she and Michael sat down in the living room. He continued to talk, still not making any sense. Carol continued to talk with Michael until dozing off around 5 a.m. When she woke up a couple hours later, he was gone. Coming tomorrow, Carol Meredith made several efforts to seek mental health treatment for her son in the hours leading up to his death. None of them were successful. And now we switch over to national and world news. Biden toughens border, offers legal path for 30,000 people a month. From Washington, President Joe Biden said Thursday the United States would immediately begin turning away Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans who crossed the border from Mexico illegally, his boldest move yet to confront the migrant arrivals that have soared since he took office two years ago. The new rules expand on an existing effort to stop Venezuelans attempting to enter the U.S., which began in October and led to a dramatic drop in Venezuelans coming to the southern border. 
Together, they represent a major change to immigration rules that will stand even if the Supreme Court ends a Trump-era public health law that allows U.S. authorities to turn away asylum seekers. Homeland Security officials said they would begin denying asylum to those who circumvent legal pathways and do not first ask for asylum in the country they traveled through en route to the U.S. Instead, the U.S. will accept 30,000 people per month from the four nations for two years and offer the ability to work legally, as long as they come legally, have eligible sponsors, and pass vetting and background checks. Border crossings by migrants from those four nations have risen most sharply, with no easy way to quickly return them to their home countries. Do not, do not just show up at the border, Biden said, as he announced the changes, even as he acknowledged the hardships that lead many families to make the dangerous journey north. Stay where you are and apply legally from there, he advised. This new process is orderly, Biden said. It's safe and humane, and it works. Separately, Mexican security forces captured Ovidio Guzman, an alleged drug trafficker wanted by the U.S. and one of the sons of former Sinaloa cartel boss Joaquin El Chapo Guzman in a pre-dawn operation Thursday that set off gunfights and roadblocks across the western state's capital. The high-profile capture and Biden's announcement came just days before López Obrador will host Biden for bilateral talks followed by their North American Leaders Summit with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Drug trafficking, along with immigration, is expected to be a top talking point. Biden plans to visit El Paso, Texas, on Sunday for his first trip to the southern border as president. From there, he will travel on to Mexico City to meet with the other North American leaders on Monday and Tuesday. The new rules, while not expected, drew swift criticism from asylum and immigration advocates. President Biden correctly recognized today that seeking asylum is a legal right and spoke sympathetically about people fleeing persecution, said Jonathan Blazer, the American Civil Liberties Union's Director of Border Strategies. But the plan he announced further ties his administration to the poisonous anti-immigrant policies of the Trump era instead of restoring fair access to asylum protections. Even with the health law restrictions in place, the president has seen the numbers of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border rise dramatically during his two years in office. There were more than 2.38 million stops during the fiscal year that ended September 30th, the first time the number topped 2 million. The administration struggled to clamp down on crossings, reluctant to take hardline measures that would resemble those of the Trump administration. That resulted in relentless criticism from Republicans who say the Democratic president is ineffective on border security and the newly minted Republican House majority promised congressional investigations on the matter. The new policy could result in 360,000 people from these four nations lawfully entering the U.S. in a year, a huge number. But far more people from those countries have been attempting to cross into the U.S. on foot, by boat, or swimming. Migrants from those four countries were stopped 82,286 times in November alone. Enor Valbuena, a Venezuelan who was living in Tijuana, Mexico, after crossing the border illegally, said Thursday's announcement came as no surprise, but a blow nonetheless. This was coming, 
It's getting more difficult all the time, he said by text message. Some Venezuelans waiting along Mexico's border with the U.S. have been talking among themselves about whether Canada is an option, Valbuena said. He had been waiting for the outcome of the pandemic-related asylum ban before trying to enter the U.S. again and is seeking asylum in Mexico, which offers a much better future than Venezuela. If it becomes more difficult to reach the U.S., the best path is to get papers in Mexico, said Valbuena, who works at a Tijuana factory. Mexico agreed to accept up to 30,000 migrants each month from the four countries who attempt to walk or swim across the U.S.-Mexico border and are turned back. Normally, these migrants would be returned to their country of origin, but the U.S. cannot easily send back people from those four countries for a variety of reasons that include relations with their governments. Anyone coming to the U.S. is allowed to claim asylum, regardless of how they cross the border. But the requirements for granting asylum are narrow, and only about 30% of applications are granted. That has created a system in which migrants try to cross between ports of entry and are allowed into the U.S. to wait out their cases. But there is a 2 million case backlog, so cases are often not heard for years. Once again, you are listening to this reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 6th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituaries. Robert E. Bob Erdman, 91, of Cherokee, died Wednesday, January 4th. Services will be January 9th at 10.30 a.m. at Memorial Presbyterian Church in Cherokee. Burial will be at Oak Hill Cemetery in Cherokee with military rites. Visitation will be January 8th from 12 to 5 p.m. at Boothby Funeral Home in Cherokee. Kenny McKeever, 50, of Moville, died Tuesday, January 3rd. A celebration of life will be January 10th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Waterbury Funeral Service of Sioux City at 4125 Orleans Avenue. And finally, Gwendolyn Gwen Bierman, 97, of Kingsley, died Wednesday, January 4th. Services are pending with Road Funeral Home in Kingsley. Also, Iowa woman believed to be oldest in U.S. dies at 115 years old. From Lake City. An Iowa woman who is believed to be the oldest living person in the U.S. has died at the age of 115. Bessie Lorena Hendricks of Lake City died Tuesday at the Shady Oaks Care Center, according to Lamp and Powers Funeral Home in Lake City. Hendricks celebrated her 115th birthday at the home on November 7th and was listed last year by the Los Angeles-based Gerontology Research Group as the country's oldest living person until her death. Born in 1907 in west-central Iowa's Calhoun County, Hendricks was alive to witness news of the sinking of the Titanic, World War I and II, the Great Depression, and both the Spanish flu and COVID-19 pandemics. She was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse there and the mother of five children, according to the Des Moines Register. She is survived by three of her children. A funeral service for Hendricks will be held at Lamp and Powers Funeral Home on Saturday. The Gerontology Research Group reports that Hendricks's death leaves 114-year-old Edie Cacciarelli of California as the country's oldest living person. And now these other stories in national and world news. Stalemate grips House. McCarthy again fails to win Speaker's gavel as GOP feud continues. 
from Washington. Pressure mounting, divided Republicans left the Speaker's chair of the U.S. House sitting empty for a third day. Thursday, as party leader Kevin McCarthy failed anew in an excruciating string of ballots to win enough GOP votes to seize the chamber's gavel. McCarthy lost in the 7th and 8th rounds of voting and launched a historic ninth ballot, with his supporters and foes seemingly stalemated, feelings of both boredom and desperation seemed increasingly evident. One McCarthy critic, Representative Matt Gates of Florida, cast his vote for Donald Trump in a symbolic but pointed gesture. McCarthy could be seen talking one-on-one in whispered conversations in the House chamber and met earlier with colleagues determined to persuade Republican holdouts to end the paralyzing debate that is blighting his new GOP majority. We're having good discussions, and I think everyone wants to find a solution, McCarthy told reporters shortly before the House gaveled in its third session. Despite endless talks, signs of concessions, and a public spectacle unlike any other in recent political memory, the path ahead remained highly uncertain. What started as a political novelty, the first time in a hundred years a nominee had not won the gavel on the first vote, has devolved into a bitter Republican party feud, and deepening potential crisis. Democrat Hakeem Jeffries of New York was renominated by Democrats. He won the most votes on every ballot, but also remained short of a majority. Republican Party holdouts again put forward the name of Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, assuring the stalemate that increasingly carried undercurrents of race and politics would continue. Donald, who is black, is seen as an emerging party leader and counterpoint to the Democratic leader, Jeffries, who is the first black leader of a major political party in the U.S. Congress, on track himself to become Speaker someday. For the eighth ballot, Republican Brian Mast of Florida, a veteran, appeared to wipe away a tear as he nominated McCarthy and insisted the California Republican was not like past GOP speakers who are derided by conservatives. Republican Andy Biggs, a past leader of the chamber's Conservative Freedom Caucus, rose to again nominate Donalds. McCarthy is under growing pressure from restless Republicans and Democrats to find the votes he needs or step aside so the House can open fully and get on with the business of governing. But McCarthy's right-flank detractors appeared intent on waiting him out as long as it takes. Catholics mourn Benedict the 16th. Pope Francis presides over Mass for Pontiff, who chose to retire from Vatican City. Pope Francis joined tens of thousands of faithful in bidding farewell to Benedict XVI at a rare requiem Mass on Thursday for a dead Pope presided over by a living one, ending an unprecedented decade for the Catholic Church that was triggered by the German theologian's decision to retire. Bells tolled, and the crowd applauded as pallbearers emerged from a fog-shrouded St. Peter's Basilica and placed Benedict's simple cypress coffin before the altar in the square outside. Wearing the crimson vestments typical of papal funerals, Francis opened the service with a prayer and closed it by solemnly blessing the casket and bowing his head. Francis made only fleeting reference to Benedict in his homily, offering a meditation on Christ instead of a eulogy of his predecessor's legacy before the casket was sealed and entombed in the Basilica Grotto. 
Heads of state, royalty, clergy, and thousands of regular people from around the world flocked to the ceremony, despite Benedict's request for simplicity and official efforts to keep the first funeral for a Pope Emeritus in modern times low-key. Many mourners hailed from Benedict's native Bavaria and donned traditional dress, including boiled wool coats to guard against the morning chill. We came to pay homage to Benedict and wanted to be here today to say goodbye, said Raymond Maynard, who traveled from a small village east of Munich for the funeral. He was a very good pope. Ignoring exhortations for decorum at the end, some in the crowd held banners or shouted, Santo Subito, Sainthood Now! echoing the spontaneous chants that erupted during St. John Paul II's 2005 funeral. The former Joseph Ratzinger, who died December 31st at age 95, is considered one of the 20th century's greatest theologians and spent his lifetime upholding church doctrine, but he will go down in history for a singular, singular revolutionary act that changed the future of the papacy. He retired, the first pope in six centuries to do so. Francis has praised Benedict's courage in stepping aside, saying it opened the door for other popes to do the same. But few, including Benedict himself, expected his ten-year retirement to last longer than his eight-year papacy, and the prolonged cohabitation of two popes in the Vatican Gardens sparked calls for protocols to guide future resignations. Some 50,000 people attended Thursday's Mass, according to the Vatican. Proud Boys members go to trial on sedition. From Washington, as members of the Proud Boys extremist group stormed past police lines and swarmed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, their leader cheered them on from afar, prosecutors say. Do what must be done, Enrique Tario wrote on social media. So what do we do now? Someone asked later that day in a Proud Boys encrypted group chat. Do it again, Tario responded. Two years later, Tario's words are at the center of the Justice Department's seditious conspiracy case against the former Proud Boys national chairman. Prosecutors in his trial in Washington are trying to build on their recent courtroom victory against leaders of another far-right extremist group, the Oath Keepers. Tario, who led the neo-fascist group <clears throat> as it became a force in mainstream Republican circles, is perhaps the highest-profile defendant yet to stand trial for charges stemming from the insurrection. Tario and four lieutenants face up to 20 years in prison if convicted of seditious conspiracy. Jury selection was underway. The trial comes at a pivotal time in the Justice Department's wide-ranging January 6th investigation. Key aspects are now overseen by Special Counsel Jack Smith, who was appointed by Attorney General Merrick Garland. Smith has issued a number of subpoenas in recent weeks to state election officials, seeking their communications with Donald Trump and others involved in the then-President's efforts to overturn his 2020 loss to Democrat Joe Biden. Police Suspect's DNA found at Idaho scene. Cell phone data shows he was near home in months before attack. From Boise, Idaho. The DNA of the man accused of killing four University of Idaho students was found on a knife sheath recovered at the crime scene. And cell phone data shows he was in the area of the victim's home multiple times in the months before the November attack, an investigator said in court documents unsealed Thursday. The documents were made public minutes before Brian 
Kohlberger, a 28-year-old criminology doctoral student at nearby Washington State University, appeared in court to face four charges of first-degree murder. He was ordered held without bail. The court documents also detail a surviving roommate's chilling encounter with a masked intruder the night of the stabbings, but the documents still leave many questions unanswered, including whether Koberger and the victims knew each other and why police weren't called to the home until nearly eight hours after the killings likely occurred. According to the newly unsealed court documents, traces of DNA from a lone male later determined to be Koberger were found on the button of a leather knife sheath found in the rental home where the victims were killed. Investigators later closely matched the DNA on the sheath to DNA found in trash taken from Koberger's parents' home in Pennsylvania, where he was arrested last week. And now these stories in sports. Battle of the Dakotas. Rivals SDSU, NDSU, meet for national title in Frisco, Texas. Eric Olson reports. The tiny South Dakota town of Rossholt isn't all that far from the North Dakota state line and is a place where allegiances are split between the jackrabbits and bison year-round and never more pronounced than this week. The South Dakota State Jackrabbits from Brookings and North Dakota State Bison from Fargo will play for the football championship subdivision title in Frisco, Texas on Saturday. It's a matchup fans have been hoping for since the schools, separated by 189 miles, began their moves to Division I together in 2004. Friends Lisa Braun and Joanna Foltz sat at the same table during happy hour at the corner bar in Russell this week. Braun is Team Jackrabbit, Foltz is Team Bison. Braun's son went to SDSU, and the recently retired physician's assistant used to drive across the state line to her job in Wapiton. I was one of three SDSU fans at the clinic there having to put up with all the Bison fans for about 15 years, she said. Braun considers it a respectful rivalry, but speaking for fellow Jacks fans, she said, we're tired of the Bison always winning. SDSU is a proud program that produced, among others, Pro Football Hall of Fame center Jim Langer and 24-year NFL kicker and career scoring leader Adam Vinatieri. Still, the Jacks have been overshadowed for decades by the Bison, who were voted Division II national champions three times in the 1960s, won five Division II playoff titles from 1983 to 90, and will be playing for their 10th FCS crown in 12 years. Jason Mork of Sioux Falls, who attended SDSU and has gone to Jack's games for 50 years, said something just feels right about playing NDSU in the final. There would be nobody more satisfying to beat, he said. At the same time, there probably is nobody more horrible to lose to. The game will mark the 114th time the teams have squared off since 1903, when the school then known as the North Dakota Agricultural College won 85 to nothing. The Bison have won the three previous FCS playoff meetings and hold a 63-45-5 lead in the series. The gap has narrowed recently. SDSU has won the last three meetings, including a 23-21 come-from-behind victory in Fargo on October 15th. Still, NDSU, at 12-2, remains the standard bearer in the second tier of Division I football. The Bison beat Montana State last season for their latest championship, and their record is a gaudy 179-32 since they became full-fledged Division I members in 2008. 
South Dakota State, which is at 13-1, made its only previous title game appearance in May 2021, losing to Sam Houston State in the COVID-19 season, pushed back to spring. The Jacks are an impressive 124-56 in their FCA era. F, pardon me, FCS era, but still are the little brother in the dynamic with their neighbor to the north. Watch parties will be held across the Dakotas, and the most ardent fans will make their long drive down Interstates 29 and 35 to see the game in person. Bison backers are expected to outnumber Jacks fans at Toyota Stadium. Each school received 4,500 tickets to sell, and those were gone within hours. Many NDSU fans expect the Bison to reach the championship game every year and buy their tickets well in advance. The bottom price for a ticket on the second, pardon me, the secondary market was $143 at midweek. Adam Timmerman, a two-time Division II All-America offensive lineman for the Jacks in the early 1990s, before his 12-year NFL career, said the matchup is especially meaningful to players of yesteryear. The rivalry was born in the days of the North Central Conference. SDSU and NDSU joined as charter members in 1922, and the NCC grew into one of the most powerful Division II leagues before schools began leaving for Division I in the 2000s. Timmerman, a Cherokee, Iowa native, said he was skeptical when SDSU announced it would go along with NDSU to Division I. The Jacks had been a middling Division II team in the years immediately before the transition, so there was concern about how they would fare against better competition. Timmerman credits former school president Peggy Miller, former athletic di- director Fred Oyen, and coach John Stiegelmeyer for having foresight and the perseverance to overcome opposition on several fronts. Stiegelmeyer has bridged the Division II and one area. Eras. He was a defensive assistant under two head coaches from 1988 to 96 before landing the top job in 97. Stiegelmeyer recently recalled how a former player once asked him why the Jacks even got on the bus for games at NDSU when, to the player, losing was a foregone conclusion. I thought, we're going to change that mentality, Stiegelmeyer said, and ideally we have. Timmerman, who played on the 1993 SDSU team that ended a 16-game losing streak in the series, said the confidence Stiegelmeyer has instilled in his players and the fan base is palpable. We have aspired to be what North Dakota State has been, Timmerman said, for a long time. Girls wrestling meet set for Tyson. Super Regionals qualifiers advance to first sanctioned state tournament. Dave Driesen reports from Sioux City. The Tyson Event Center will host two of the eight Super Regionals for girls high school wrestlers to qualify for the first sanctioned state tournament. The Regionals will start simultaneously at 11 a.m. on January 27th. High school girls have been wrestling on boys' teams for decades. Under pressure from advocates, the Iowa High School Girls Athletic Union agreed earlier this year to allow girls to have their own sanctioned teams and tournaments. The top four wrestlers from each weight class in each of the eight regions will qualify for the inaugural IHSGAA State Tournament, February 2nd through 3rd at the Extreme Arena in Coralville. More than 100 schools in the state are offering girls wrestling programs, including over 20 from Northwest Iowa. About 50 girls went out for the sport at Sioux City's three public schools, around 15 each at North and about 20 at West. 
West and Sergeant Bluff Luton were assigned to Region 1, which consists of 22 schools. East and North will be in Region 2, which has 32 schools. Additional journal circulation schools assigned to Region 1 include Boyden Hull, Rock Valley, Central Lion, George Little Rock, Denison Schweislig, Okaboji, Hartley Melvin, Sanborn, Pocahontas Area, Sheldon, South O'Brien, and Sioux Center. Additional area schools assigned to Region 2 include East Sac County, Emmitsburg, GTRA, Lamars, MOC Floyd Valley, Ridgeview, Sioux Central, Spencer, Spirit Lake Park, West Lyon, and Western Christian. And in college girls basketball, Soars leads ISU past West Virginia. Grad transfer grabs 20 rebounds for number 11 Cyclones. Rob Gray reports from Ames. Iowa State's Stephanie Soares is no stranger to 20 rebound games. She did it frequently for the Masters University at the NAIA level, but in the Big 12, that's different. You have to, pardon me, you kind of have to do everything, said the 6'6 Soares, who grabbed 20 boards in 25 minutes as the number 11 Cyclones cruised past West Virginia at 70 to, pardon me, 70 to 50, Wednesday at Hilton Coliseum. It's nicer now. Much harder, too. Soares became the first ISU player to corral 20 rebounds since all-time leading scorer Ashley Jones accomplished the feat March 3, 2020, in a win at Kansas. The Brazil native and graduate transfer also scored 13 points and blocked three shots. I wish you guys could see her at practice and how hard she works, said Cyclone head coach Bill Fenley whose team improved to 10-2 overall and 2-0 in Big 12 play. What I told her was, you're like a freshman that came to college and we're teaching you a graduate-level class. No offense to the NAIA, but it is completely different than what she's doing. The kid cares so much about what she's doing. She wants to be the person that everyone thinks she can be. That's a standout player for an ISU team with realistic expectations to forge another deep NCAA tournament run. And Soares has lived up, lived up to those lofty aims, and the conference season's just getting started. Steph does an amazing job on the boards, especially on the offensive end, then also on the defensive end, said Jones, who notched her 55th career double-double with 19 points and 11 rebounds. It allows us to get second-chance shots, and it stops them from getting second-chance shots. The Cyclones treated the second half as a second chance of sorts after struggling early and striding into halftime tied 37-37. ISU turned the ball over eight times in the first quarter alone, and the Mountaineers, which are at 9-4 or 0-2, drilled six of their first 12 three-point shots to maintain control in the first half. That completely changed after halftime, as the Cyclones forged a 20-2 run and West Virginia started 3-for-29 from the field. The Mountaineers missed their final 15 three-point attempts and trailed by double digits all but two minutes of the second half. We settled and we took maybe two quick a shots at times and things just kind of started unraveling, West Virginia coach Don Plitzewite said called a couple timeouts to try and get us back in a rhythm, a flow, and couldn't quite get it. Lexi Donarski added 15 points for ISU and became the 33rd Cyclone to surpass 1,000 career points. Reserve forward Nyamer 
Dieu, played her best game of the season, totaling 7 points and 7 rebounds in just over 20 minutes of playing time. I texted Nye after practice yesterday, Fenley said. It was the best practice she'd had all year. How hard she worked, how engaged she was, very similar to when the corner turned for her last year, and I think it translated to today. She was a huge part of the game, a huge part on both ends. So is Soares, whose impact on ISU's fortunes should continue to grow as the grueling Big 12 slate plays out. Certainly, Soares is a factor in the lane, Blitz White said, makes life really difficult. And finally, Mustangs women knock off flames. Morningside leads from start to finish in home contest. From Sioux City. Leading from the opening tip-off to the final buzzer, Morningside's women's basketball team stomped out the College of St. Mary Flames 83-62 on Wednesday night. With the home victory, the Mustangs moved to 9-6 on the season and 4-5 and in the Great Plains Athletic Conference. Morningside stole the ball on CSM's opening possession with Olivia Larson collecting the swipe and a two-point basket to give the Mustangs a 2-0 lead in the first 11 seconds of the contest. The turnover would set the tune for the game, with the Flames committing 23 turnovers, resulting in 20 points Morningside had 16... Pardon me, resulting in 20 points. Morningside had 16 steals, forcing all but seven turnovers, with Sophia Peppers and Alexa Spear each swiping four balls. Larson followed with three steals. Spear led all scores with 26 points, going 9 for 18 from the field. McKenna Sims followed with 15 points, and Larson and Ella Rag each had 8. Peppers and Chloe Lofstrom co-led the Mustangs on the boards, each collecting seven rebounds. Six of Pepper's grabs came on the defense, while Lostrom cleaned the offensive glass three times on the way to her seven. Morningside continues its conference schedule on Saturday when it travels to Fremont, Nebraska to face Midland University at 2 p.m. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for today, Friday, January 6th. I'm your reader, Mark Bedford. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.